Please turn with me to John chapter 15. The Gospel of John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. If you're visiting here, then I would like you to know we've been taking a journey through John, looking at the I am sayings of Jesus. And along this journey... We've been going toward a destination, the destination being the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it would be helpful to think of the I am statements as pit stops along the way. And at every pit stop, we learn more and more about our Savior, more and more about what he came to do. He came to redeem his people. He is Israel's long-expected Messiah and God in the flesh. And so here in chapter 15, we have what is known as the farewell discourse. And this discourse is called the farewell discourse because Jesus is leaving. He's departing. He's going back to the Father. And in a few chapters later, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to die. And so the farewell discourse is Jesus preparing his disciples for what's about to happen, for what's about to happen to him in his death, but also when he rises from the dead and goes back to the Father's right hand. And when he goes back to the Father, he doesn't want his disciples to despair. He doesn't want them to lack joy. He doesn't want them to Let the movement die out, as it were, like some fad. 
He wants them to continue what he started, continue to be fruitful in their lives, even while he's gone. And yet, for them to be fruitful, they need to remain connected to him somehow. They need to remain connected to the vine, because in the vine, they find spiritual life. If they don't remain connected to him, then their spiritual life will die out. And so that's why we have this metaphor of the vine and the branches. You must be united to the vine for spiritual life. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was known as the vine. God called Israel, his people, the vine. David says in Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took, it took deep root and filled the land. God brought Israel out of Egypt, and then he planted them in the promised land, in Canaan. But toward the end of that psalm, toward the end of Psalm 80, the vine is unfruitful. They're unfaithful, and they're attacked by wild Animals, making the point that Israel was unfruitful. They were unfaithful. And the surrounding nations began to attack them. God sent judgment upon them because of their rejection of God. And so in that psalm, in Psalm 80, there's hope. There's also hope that one day God would restore his people to life again. And we see that in verses 14 and 18 of that psalm. And so we come to chapter 15, and the metaphor shifts from the people of God being the vine to Jesus being the vine. And through him, through Jesus, God makes a way for his people to be restored to life again. There's been a shift. In the Old Testament, if someone wanted to be near God, if someone wanted access to God, be close to God, then they had to be a part of the covenant community. They had to be engrafted into the people of God because the people of God was referred to as the vine. And you can think of Gentiles who were engrafted into that community, Rahab and the Gibeonites. But even when Gentiles were engrafted into the covenant community, they did not have the same access to God that the Jews had. Remember, they had to remain in the outer court, the outer court of the Gentiles. And yet, this shift has taken place with Jesus, who calls himself the vine. He says, I am the vine, which means we come directly to the source of life. And whoever abides in him will bear fruit. He fulfills Israel's role as the vine. He's the true vine who came out of Egypt, Matthew 2.15. Before you had to be part of Israel, you had to become a Jew to experience spiritual life with God. But now we come to the true Israel of God. People no longer have to become Jews, they have to come to Christ. That's how we receive life, in Him. And so our main point this morning is that fruitful life is found in union with Christ. Fruitful life is found in union with Christ. You must be united to him, 
And not in any superficial way. You must have a personal relationship with him. You must abide in him and he in you. And so we'll look at our text under two headings. One, the promises of abiding in Christ. And two, the purpose of abiding in Christ. The promises and the purpose. There are three promises here in our text about, of abiding in Christ. The first is, if you do not bear fruit, you will be cut off. If you don't bear fruit, you will be cut off. And this is hard and difficult to understand. Jesus says in verse 1, my father is the vine dresser. Then verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And hearing that can create a lot of anxiety, can't it? As, a, as if the believer is always to be looking over their shoulder, always to be looking at their life for fruit, as if we're called to constant fruit inspection. And the phrase in me makes this a little bit more difficult. What does he mean by in me? It seems like Jesus is saying that one moment, one moment you can be united to him, you can be genuinely in him, and then the next moment you can be cut off if you're not bearing enough fruit, if you're not doing enough good works. And yet here I think we need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. First, we need to know what he's not saying. He's not saying if you believe, if you have genuine faith, (laughs) he's not saying if you believe and have genuine faith, then you will be cut off from him. Um, and And good works is what keeps you in his grace. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And Jesus has already said that if you come to him, he will not cast you out. Um, the, his people are in his hands. You cannot pluck, pluck, pluck them out of his hands. You can't take them out of his father's hand. And so with that in mind, we come to verse 2. And Jesus must be talking about what we would call the visible church or the covenant community. He's giving us a picture of life in the covenant community. And the idea is that there are some who make a profession of faith. There are those who claim to believe, those who come to church every Sunday, and yet they do not have the root of the matter in them. They might claim to be associated with Christ, they might t- claim to have a relationship with him, but they don't have saving knowledge of him. They do not abide in him. And we're told that the tares and the wheat, they grow together. The visible church is made up of those who profess Christianity, who have genuine faith, but also those who do not. And you might not know Who has genuine faith until that final day on Judgment Day when some branches are gathered, as we're told in verse 6, and they're thrown into the fire and they're burned? That's why verses 2 and 6 are very serious warnings for the people of God. People who come to church every week, even twice a week. You cannot fool God with your fake fruit. 
God knows your heart, and you will be found out. In seminary, one of my professors did a demonstration, and he took a bright, shiny red apple. Apples, apples are my favorite fruit. So he took an apple, and he stapled it to a little tree, a dead tree. It was rotten to the core. And we came to class a few days later, and you can imagine what happened when the California heat got to that apple and got to the tree. The apple began to wither away. It looked ugly and, and nasty. And his point was, you can try all you want to force fruit, to put, put good fruit on a bad tree, on a rotten tree, and yet in the end, the fruit will look ugly and nasty. It doesn't matter how many good works you think you do, if you do not have the root of the matter in you, if your core is rotten, if you're not a good tree, then you will not produce good fruit. And your good works remain filthy rags before a holy God. Only a good tree can produce good fruit. And you need a new heart. We all need a new heart, don't we? If you feel like today you're that branch who is withering away, your spiritual life feels like it's shriveling up, maybe you haven't read your Bible in a while, maybe you're not praying as much as you need to be, you don't see any fruit on your life, then it's time to come back to the vine. The lack of fruit in our lives ought not drive us away to Christ. That's how you die. That's how you shrivel up. The lack of fruit in our lives ought to drive us toward the vine because only he can give us life. And that's what he promises to do in verses 4 and 5. And that's the second promise in our text. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. To bear fruit, first you must be united to Christ. That's the first way we bear fruit. You need a union to him, an unbreakable bond with him. And this is really the central point of our text, summarized in verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Then he says in verse 5, apart from me you can do Nothing. And so union to, to Christ produces spiritual fruit in our lives. It, it enables us to live unto God's glory, to obey his command and live a fruitful life. As believers, our idea of a fruitful life has been heavily influenced by the world. Our idea of a fruitful life can be distorted. It can be incomplete. A fruitful life is not primarily found in how much wealth you have because even poor people can have the fruitful life that Jesus is talking about. A fruitful life is not primarily about getting married and having kids. Now, that can be part of it, but it has to be more than that. It has to go deeper because even single people can live a fruitful life. A fruitful life is not career satisfaction because you can work every day and not enjoy your job and still live a fruitful life for God's glory. A fruitful life is not found 
and how many friends you have, not in your network, not in your connection with people, but your connection to Christ, your connection to the vine. Your spiritual life will flourish if you are united to Christ. It might not feel that way now. You might be in in the valley. You might not see any fruit in your life. But we have this promise right here. We have God's word on our side. He says you will bear fruit. Your heart will begin to change. Your life will begin to look more and more like the life of Christ. And no matter what your circumstances are, you can live a fruitful life if you come to Jesus. Only he can give this life because he's God. The fruitful life is found in God and it comes from God. And it comes from Jesus because he claims to be God. Remember, here he's invoking the divine name. He says, I am the vine. That's the name that God revealed to Moses. I am who I am. And yet, here Jesus is elaborating on what it means to be the great I am. It means to be the source of spiritual life. Spiritual life comes from God. It comes from outside of us. We cannot muster it up in ourselves. We cannot fake it till we make it. We need him to work it in us. We need connection to the life source. We need a, con- a connection to the vine, even when the vine is at the Father's right hand. The, fa- the vine is not here on earth. Jesus is ascended right now, and yet we still need that connection to him. And that connection, the way that heaven and earth are bridged, is faith. Faith is how you remain connected to the vine even as he is in heavenly places. And so your life might look barren and dead and wasted right now, but if you are connected to the vine, if you are connected to Christ, your life will be fruitful, no matter your circumstances. So one, we bear fruit because of our union with Christ. And the overflow and outworking of this union is real, genuine fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. It's very straightforward. Now, in chapter 14, the previous chapter, Jesus talks about his going back to the Father, but also sending down the Holy Spirit. And here, it's no coincidence then that he begins to talk about bearing fruit. Because what is the work of the Spirit in our life? to produce fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. As Paul, Paul says in Galatians 5, things like patience and joy and love and kindness. You must be united to Christ by His Spirit in order to have this fruitful life Christ was talking about. But what's interesting is once we're united to Him, it's not that the Father then steps back, he doesn't step away and say, okay, now, you, now that you're united to Christ, now, you, now that you have the Spirit bearing fruit in your life, my work here is done. The, the Father doesn't do that. No, the Father is still active in your life, helping you to be fruitful as well. And that is the second way we bear fruit, by the Father. We go through a pruning process. To bear fruit, you must be pruned. You need some work done. 
In verse 1, the father is called the vine dresser. And in verse 2, he says, Every branch that does not bear fruit, the father prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And I imagine some of you in here know exactly what that pruning process is like. It's painful. It hurts. There are, but it's necessary. There are things in our lives, things in your life and my life that need to be cut off and taken away, things that prevent our growth. And it might be certain relationships, it might be certain routines that we have, certain ways of thinking. And often God will put situations in your life to prune you, to weed out everything that is dead in your life, mainly that sinful flesh that is still in you, so that the fruit of the Spirit might then be more visible in your life. Uh, Some of you have learned love because you've had to forgive someone who deeply hurt you. Some of you have learned joy because you didn't know how God was going to bring you through a trial and get you through a storm, and yet he still brought you through. Some of you have learned peace because a loved one has gone to be with the Lord, and yet you know they're better now. You know they're much happier now. The fruit of the Spirit is made visible in our lives when God prunes us. And the pruning is painful. He's like the gardener who knows exactly where to cut. He knows exactly the situation and the trial to give us so that we might bear more fruit for him. God's pruning is like something we have all experienced in our life. Something that we don't really like when we're younger But when we grow older, we learn to appreciate, and that is getting a haircut. Now, some of you parents in here remember when your kid got their first haircut. Maybe they were kicking and screaming everywhere. Maybe it wasn't a very good experience for them or you. Um, But when you get older, you appreciate a nice haircut, and you have trust in your barber. You trust him or her to get you right. You want them to, you trust that they're going to leave you better off in the end. And so you know that they wield the blade. They know just how to use it. And they cut off those raggedy pieces of hair, those split ends and those dead, dead pieces, so that your hair is more full. It's able to grow. And yet we have no problem with our barber pruning us because we know that in the end, it'll be better for us. Well, well God is like our heavenly barber. He's like our our heavenly barber who knows what to give us. He knows what to cut away. And we might not like it in the moment, but the more mature we get in the faith, the older we grow in Christ, we realize that if it had not been for him pruning me, then I would not be where I am right now. I would not have joy. I would not have patience. I would not be growing in my faith. Evidence of God's pruning then is evidence of God pruning you is evidence that you belong to him. He he says in verse 7 or in 
I'm, I completely lost. <laughs> I went through like two pages of notes. But God prunes you because he knows that you need it. And the end product is that you look better in the end. Um, in verse 8, um, he says, that will show and reveal that you belong to him, that you are one of his disciples. Because he could put an unbeliever through all of those trials and all of that pruning and pain, and yet it would not produce fruit in their life. They might become more aware of God, and yet it would not make them fruitful because they don't have the root. They don't have a new heart. And so for you, because you're regenerate, because you're, he says in verse 3, because you are already clean by the word, God's pruning is positive for you. You need it, and it grows you. And so that is evidence that you belong to him. But another evidence that you belong to him is that you begin to pray differently. When you abide in Christ, you pray differently. And this is the third and final promise. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, this verse has been used and abused multiple times. Um, People often say, well, Lord, I pray for a Lamborghini. Lord, I pray for a bigger house. I name it and I claim it. And yet I think people forget the condition here. Look at the condition here. He says, if you abide in me and my words in you. That presupposes that you are born again, that you have union and communion with him. And if those things are true of you, then you will begin to pray differently. You will pray God's will for your life because your will and his will will begin to align. You will want what God wants for you. And yet how often do we pray for God's hidden will? We want God's hidden will. We'll pray like, God, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if you want to do this in my life, but can you please do fill in the blank? And yet here, we're being taught to pray God's revealed will. There are so many things that we could pray that we know God wants to do for us, that we know he will answer and fulfill. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, God desires your sanctification, your holiness. Ezekiel 18.23, God desires salvation for the wicked. Romans 12.2, God desires that you not be conformed to the ways of this world. And so we have all of these things that we can pray for that we know God will answer. And yet, in order to pray those things, we have to know God's will. And to know God's will, you have to know the word. The word must be in you. And if the word is in you, then that means Christ is in you. We have to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us, as Paul says, Colossians 1.16. And so we've talked a lot about abiding in Christ. You need to abide in him, abide in him. And yet that can feel like a burden. I mean, abide is in the imperative mood. It is a command. And yet I don't want us to think, and, I, and Christ doesn't want us to think that abiding in him is another law, that it's burdensome, and yet it can feel that way. We need to know why. 
We need to know why we're abiding in him, the purpose of abiding in him. And that's our final point, the purpose of abiding in Christ. We've looked at all of these promises of abiding in him, and now we're looking at the purpose. And if we're honest with ourselves, obeying God, walking in his ways, it is not pleasant. Our sinful nature is at war with us, and we want, what, we want to follow him, but oftentimes we do that which we do not want to do. We do things that are contrary to God's law. But the reason we strive to abide in Christ is because, one, it glorifies God. There's no better reason than that. Abiding in Christ glorifies God. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There is no better reason. And so the first question in the Shorter Catechism, it says, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, we Reformed folks, are we love that first part, and I think we excel at it. We glorify God with our right and ordered worship. We glorify God by our orthodoxy. But what about the latter half, the enjoyment of God? You have to remember, he, Jesus is leaving. He's going away, but he doesn't want them to despair. He doesn't want them to lack joy. And so he says, abide in me, walk in my commandments, and you'll enjoy it. You will find joy. You'll have the very joy that I experienced with my father. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The enjoyment of walking in the ways of God, walking blameless before the Father, that joy can be yours and that joy can be mine. That's the very joy that Jesus had when he walked on earth. He and his Father had perfect communion, perfect, a perfect relationship. He lived the perfect life, the fruitful life that we are called to live. And yet he did it for us. He did it for us. And that fruitful life we are called to live, we partake in as we are united to him by faith, by the Holy Spirit. And so this union that we have will produce fruit. We will begin to more and more look like Jesus in our lives. And so my question for you this morning is, do you find joy in that? Do you, do you delight in God's law? As David says in Psalm 1, do you delight in being obedient? Do you have joy this morning? Do you have joy that you are now free, set free? That's why God redeemed us in the first place, that we might walk before him, that we might live a fruitful life. Do you have joy that your sins are forgiven and that you stand before a holy God, holy You are holy. You are righteous. And that righteousness has been credited to you. You no longer have to earn God's favor. You don't have to fruit check and fruit inspect. Because these are promises. God promises to produce that fruit in your life. He will do it. 
He says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That right there is our motivation for obedience. We're not motivated to be obedient because we're afraid of God, because we think he's going to condemn us and cut us off. No, if you have faith, you don't have to be afraid. There is no condemnation for you. And now that frees you up to live a life of gratitude and joyful service for him. That's our proper response. Abide in him because of all that he's done for us. Don't go to the left. Don't move to the right. Remain in him. Remain in his love. Take it all in. And if you do that, you will live a fruitful life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and in it we find how we are to walk and how we are to live. We thank you for redemption, that you sent your son to live the perfect life for us. He's obedient for us. And then that righteousness is credited to our account. May we, may we rejoice in that and love you. Would we not be afraid that we are going to be condemned or, or be cut off if we do not do enough good or perform enough works? For we know that Christ has done it all. I pray we would rest in that truth and your spirit would produce his fruit in our lives. That it would be more and more visible so that others would look at us and see our lives are different. And yet it is not because we are intrinsically good, but we are connected to the life-giving source, connected to the vine. I pray that Christ would be glorified in how we live. In his name we pray. Amen.